It is such a marvelous place to be when we fully recognize Jesus for who he really is. We really adore him and understand what it means for him to be everything to us in our lives. My prayer this morning has been that the text that we are going to be going to would be uh, a further indicator, and a further pointer of that joy and that satisfaction that, though imperfect in this life, will one day be fully perfected and realized in the next. And so I'm excited to be able to do that this morning. I want to thank you as we start this morning just for your prayers last week. Uh, your worship folders are accurate this week. Uh, your note sheets are accurate this week, but thank you for the last-minute adjustments to the schedule last Sunday. Appreciate the prayers and encouragements that many of you offered to our family as our littlest one was in the hospital last week. All is well now. We're very thankful for that, but um, continuing to just seek prayers on that. So thank you for being a loving, gracious, and understanding church in those regards. Thankful for Pastor Josh stepping in last second. That's always the call that everybody wants to get right on a Saturday uh, right before uh, Sunday. But very thankful for Pastor Josh and his faithful ministry uh, to us last Sunday. But today we are going to return to our study on indestructible joy from Paul to the Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open this morning to Philippians chapter 3. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to put one in your hands this morning. Uh, we have two of our finest looking men in the church who are going to be making their way to the back of the, the aisles here. So just throw your hand up in the air. They'd be happy to get one to you so that you can follow along with us this morning from Philippians chapter 3. Well, in recent weeks, we have seen what it looks like for us as Christians to walk as worthy citizens of God's kingdom while we are here on earth. Uh, much of that is worked out uh, in an attitude of humility, which we saw in chapter 2, which models the sacrificial mindset of our Lord and Savior himself. We have seen that it is God who is working in us to live as faithful witnesses in this dark and desperate age. And we have seen in recent weeks how there are living examples of this in the New Testament and faithful ministries like men of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Which brings us then this morning to our text in Philippians chapter 3, where we're going to see Paul uh, make a turn into the next section of this great letter. And so I would encourage you uh, another time here, if you don't mind, stand as we read together in honor of God's word. As God speaks, we want to give proper reverence to it, and we're going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 3, very short passage, but one that is really packed with a punch. So let's read this morning from Philippians chapter 3, the first three verses together. Paul writes in Philippians 3 verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Very short but powerful passage before us this morning. Let's have you sit and let's pray together 
and ask for God to grant us wisdom as we unpack these three short verses together this morning. And so now, Father, we do come before you to ask for that wisdom. We know that you are a gracious God who seeks to grant to your people what we lack when we ask in faith. And so we come this morning knowing that your word is life. And we desire that that would impart itself to our hearts this morning. We need you. We cannot do this apart from you. Help us to see Christ in all of his glory and all of his sufficiency for us here this morning. We would ask and pray in his name. Amen. Well, many of you have probably experienced the disappointment that comes from placing your trust in the wrong thing or the wrong person. For example, a few years ago, when I was very early in my time of ministry here at Newcastle, I uh, arranged to meet a student to pick him up so we could go out to, to breakfast together and plugged his address into the GPS and found that rather than taking me east out of Mackinac, the direction that I needed to go, it took me several miles west out into the middle of the cornfields to which I had to eventually call the student and say, how do I get to your house? Pretty embarrassing first impression. Perhaps you can relate to that or countless other examples of misplaced confidence. Perhaps a menu item that somebody suggested at a very popular restaurant. An infomercial product that broke almost instantly after you got it, even though it said it was the best thing ever. Or how about this? The gas gauge that you thought would give you enough fuel to get to your next destination. See, it may be a little finger pointing out there. You know what I'm talking about. We all have examples of how and where confidence can or has been misplaced. And such is the situation at hand for the church in Philippi here. Paul is writing to a group of believers who were tempted or being tempted to place confidence for their salvation in the wrong place. And as such, Paul is writing to remind them and us by extension this morning that confidence for our salvation is found not in our failing works, but in the finished work of Christ. That confidence for our salvation is found not in our failing works, but in the finished work of Jesus. What Paul is going to do for us this morning in this short yet powerful passage is to draw an inseparable connection between confidence for our salvation and true and lasting joy. A connection showing that when our confidence is rightly placed, we find a joy worth keeping. And yet, we will also see that such joy is constantly under attack. There is a very real threat to joy, of being, uh, joy being robbed by those who seek to place confidence in the wrong place. For those who buy into this misplaced thinking, Paul warns that the consequences are far from joyful. In fact, they are actually mournful. 
Those who misplace confidence for their salvation are the true losers, while those who place confidence in Christ are the real winners, for they have found a joy worth keeping. So that's what we're going to explore this morning, the contrast between these two ideas. So let's begin this morning by looking at where joy, first of all, is found. Where is such joy found? And as we begin this morning, Paul seems to pull a little bit of a mean trick on us in verse 1. He opens this new section with that very first word, finally. Now, in our minds, we most naturally understand finally to mean what? Finally, right? Lastly, in conclusion, Let's see, when a pastor or a teacher gives this signal, it's usually the cue for people to start closing up their books, right? Packing up their bags, or if you're a parent like me in this room, picking up all the mint wrappers on the ground, right, from the sermon. But if you're anything like me, you look at this verse and you realize we're only in chapter 3. And there's four chapters in this book. And I'm not a math scholar by any means, but by my estimation, that means we're only halfway through. Uh, That feels kind of like a pastor saying, well, as we wrap up or in conclusion, and he goes on for 20 more minutes, right? I'm sure none of you have experienced that before. So what gives, Paul? What gives? Well, it's because the word that Paul uses here is more of a transitional word, right? It's it's more of a a transition of thought to a a new line of thinking. It's his way of saying, and so, or as for the rest of what needs to be said, and so it serves as a transitional point in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, we've kind of seen Paul explaining to us what it means to walk worthy, as worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we're going to see him kind of unpack the idea that he laid out back in chapter 1, verse 25, of what it means to continue for your progress and joy in the faith. While you still live in this life, what does this progress for joy in the faith look like? And so that's what he's going to unpack for us here in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And what we're going to see, first of all, this morning is that progress in joy for us is found in Jesus, the source of all boasting. In Jesus, who is the source of all boasting. Paul begins this section with a clear call for Christians in Philippi to rejoice. It is a command, an imperative that he is giving to these people. And as we've previously discussed, joy describes a state that goes beyond uh, just mere happiness. More than just him saying, be happy. As Paul will later describe in this chapter, it's a word that reveals satisfaction or or contentment or delight. But we naturally have to ask ourselves, how can we have joy when life is hard? When our family is suffering? 
How can you have joy when your kids are really struggling and you as a parent as a result are struggling? How can you have joy when your role at work is a nightmare right now? That's very real. This is where Paul points us back to both the occasion and the source and the means of our joy. Look what he says in verse 1. He doesn't just say to rejoice. He says to rejoice in the Lord. This is the first time in this entire letter where he has attached this qualifier to rejoice. So much of this letter has been about joy so far, but this is the first time he adds that qualifier to rejoice specifically in the Lord. And that qualifier is important because it's not just some throwaway phrase that he's using as if he's just trying to add to his necessary word count for the letter, right? Many of you have done that for papers before, don't lie. Kidding, of course. But it points to the true and lasting source of joy. There is a reason this world cannot fully satisfy the longings of your heart. Just ask Solomon. He tried it. He tried it all. And yet none of it was able to provide true and lasting satisfaction. Because true and lasting joy can only be found in Jesus. The source of all boasting. What does that mean though? What does it mean that Christ is the source of our boasting? Most of us have been told boasting is not good. Don't brag. Don't boast. But this is a far different type of boasting that he's talking about here. And we're going to learn verses two, in verses 2 and 3, they're going to show us that there were people influencing the church in Philippi who, who believed that Jesus was good, but not quite good enough. Jesus is good, but he's not quite enough for fullness of joy. For fullness of, of confidence. You could be confident in your salvation, but only if you perform some of the, the necessary tasks on the side that solidified that. As such, these men put confidence or boasted, we could say, in their flesh rather than in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In other words, they had reason to boast in what they did rather than what Christ had already done. This is a very real and dangerous threat to joy, which is why Paul begins this section by reminding us where true joy actually is found. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. We have every reason, like Paul, to boast exclusively in the cross of Jesus. In fact, this is what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where he says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, so that they may boast in what? Their flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except what? The cross of Christ. The cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank goodness for this. If salvation, church, if salvation was based on you, if it was based on me, guess what? We would have zero confidence. We would have absolutely no confidence whatsoever in your standing with God. 
And so church, remember this morning where true joy is found. One of the greatest indicators that you are progressing in your Christian faith is that you have greater joy. You have greater joy. How do I know? How do I know if I have greater joy? Well, it's seen in how you respond to life's challenges. That when life gets hard, even though it is difficult, you are not easily rattled, but you rest in the peace that God provides. It's seen in how you carry yourself each and every day before others, displaying a trust and a hope that is far different from the rest of this world. That when the news is, is bombarding you with every reason to be anxious and concerned in this life, you remember that your hope is not in this life, but that you are a citizen of your eternal home in heaven. It's seen in how you respond to sin, both your own and those in your sphere of influence. That you have an eagerness to put off the old and to put on the new, knowing that Jesus is far better than anything else that this world can provide you. That's how you see that you are growing in joy and satisfaction and delight in Christ, not in the things of this world. Church, our world needs to see Jesus, and they will see Jesus when they see us being satisfied in Jesus. I know that's a confusing statement, so let me say it again. Listen closely. Our world needs to see Jesus. Amen? And they will see Jesus when they start to see us being fully satisfied and fully delighted in Jesus and not the things of this world. But Jesus is not only the source of all boasting, he is also the safety for all believers. Joy is found in Jesus, who is the safety for all believers. Paul writes here in verse 1, to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Such a comment seems odd by itself, but when considered in light of what is coming in verse 2, it's not all that unique. By reminding believers of where joy is found, Paul is able to help guard them against where joy could potentially be lost. The Philippians needed this reminder, and church, let's be honest, we need this reminder this morning as well, don't we? The call to find joy in Jesus is one of the greatest protections that we can offer ourselves and use for our fellow believers. I mean, it did not pain Paul in the slightest to keep reminding them of these things because he knew it was for their eternal good. It was a protection for them. I know of many farmers in this area who, who use uh, some form of electrical fencing around their livestock or their cattle that they have on the farm. It seems cruel and it seems weird, but when we consider why it's there, its purpose is actually quite good, isn't it? You see, that electric fencing, though very dangerous in nature, is actually a source of protection. It's a safeguard that keeps animals owned by the, the, the farmer where they should be in the pasture where they belong, but it also at the same time keeps out those that might be a threat to the livestock. 
You see, for Christians, joy in Christ is the safeguard that reminds us where we need to remain while also at the same time protecting us from where that joy could be robbed, where it could be sabotaged, where it could be interfered with. It guards us against those who want to intrude on such joy, which leads us this morning to where joy can be and is lost. We see in verse 2 a strong change in tone by the Apostle Paul. He goes from this call to greatly rejoice to saying now, watch out. Watch out. Be on guard. We have to ask ourselves, what merits such strong language? Who deserves such a, a strong rebuke? Who are these people and why is Paul concerned about them? Better yet, this. Why is he so concerned for the Philippians? Well, he's concerned because he knows that joy is often lost by being led astray by those who want to add to Jesus. He's concerned about this, and we should be concerned about this as well as a church. Being led astray by those who want to add to Jesus. The people of verse 2 here are not named specifically, but the warnings that Paul gives here are enough, uh, give us enough detail to reasonably consume that the, the people that Paul is most likely addressing are his nemesis of the New Testament, these group of people known as the Judaizers. And that's a fancy word, one that you don't necessarily have to remember, but these, this fancy word to describe Jewish Christians who demanded that Gentile Christians obey certain Jewish laws, particularly the act of circumcision, to really qualify as true followers. After all, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant people, so it should be required if you're going to identify yourself as one of God's covenant people, which on the surface sounds maybe reasonable, right? Sounds like that could make sense. And Paul's going to address that specific argument in verse 3, but before that, we must understand that this was a matter that at this time had already been settled. The Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15 had settled this debate about what it really meant for Gentiles to become Christians, and it was very clearly decided at that, based on everything they had even learned from Jesus in his ministry, absolutely not. This is not about these external things that you have to do in order to solidify yourself as a true follower. And yet, even though this matter had been settled, Paul repeatedly dealt with this group throughout his ministry. They were a constant nuisance, a constant thorn in his side. They often traveled to cities where he had established churches to undercut his teaching and lead other people astray. In fact, if you want to read a, a commentary on verse 2, just turn two chapters or two books over in your Bible to the letter to the Galatians. And literally, the book of Galatians is a commentary on what Paul is talking about here in verse 2. 
You'll see a lot of my cross-references for this morning come specifically from that letter because this is exactly the argument Paul addressed. And Paul has choice words for these men. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. It's like a giant beware of dog sign. Now, have to be careful here because what was meant to be offensive to Paul's enemies in the first century could come across as offensive to us in our 21st century this morning. I want to be very clear about something here and for all you dog lovers, I'm really sorry about this, but understand this, dogs in first century Palestine, they weren't carried around in handbags they were not knitted sweaters at Christmas time. They were not included in family pictures. People didn't really even have them as pets. I know, sad world it seems like, right? In fact, really the opposite was true. Dogs were considered scavengers, gross, unclean. I know, horrible, right? But it was even a term that the Jews would use to describe Gentiles as a way of really undermining them and really being an insult to them. Those dogs. And it's interesting because Paul here turns it on its head and he now actually uses this term that was meant to insult the Gentiles and he now uses it against the Jews. He says, look out for the true dogs. Because by trying to add to the work of Christ, these men were proving themselves to be the true monsters. They were proving themselves to be the true scavengers, the gross ones, the unclean ones who would do something that Christ would never advocate for. Second, he calls them evildoers. Look out for the evildoers. They think that they are doing righteous works when in reality they are requiring works that only condemn. That's evil. That's evil at its heart. And then finally he calls them the, the mutilators of the flesh. Paul uses here a play on words with that term for circumcision. A word that means to, to cut around and instead he uses a word that means to cut into pieces. It's very savage language that he's using here. It's the difference between, think about having ever gone in for a haircut before you say, I just want a little trim off the top, and then they just completely butcher it, right? Just chunks everywhere. It's a mess. Paul's saying, this, 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 is, this is not, this is not Christ-like. This is complete devastation, Paul is not pulling any punches here. He's not mincing words. He wants to convey the serious nature of adding imperfect human works to the already finished work of Jesus. Because if Christ said on the cross, it is finished, then guess what? It is finished. If the message of the New Testament is to repent and to believe in Jesus, then confidence for our salvation is found in repenting and trusting in the finished and saving work of Jesus Christ alone. 
We put all of our confidence in the truth that Christ has already paid for the consequences of our sins completely. We put all our confidence in the fact that the righteousness that we possess as Christians comes not from ourselves but from the perfect works of Jesus that he already accomplished on our behalf so that we are considered the righteousness of God in him. The danger of these people and their message is one of subtraction by addition. I know you've probably never heard of that before. You've maybe heard of addition by subtraction, meaning a group gets stronger when you maybe take certain people away from it. But this is essentially a form of subtraction by addition. In fact, it's really this idea that the power of the gospel is completely lost when you add to it. In fact, that's what Paul writes about in Galatians 5.2, where he says... If you accept circumcision, guess what? Christ is of no advantage to you. It's of no advantage to you. It doesn't say circumcision is of no value to you. He says, if you're trusting in this added work to what Jesus has already done, guess what? It's void. This whole power of the gospel is completely void and it's empty. As such, all joy is lost by being cut off from those who are truly part of Jesus. These men thought that the act of circumcision is what actually makes them members in God's family. But Paul corrects that misunderstanding in verse 3 where he says that the real circumcision are those who are sealed by the Spirit of God. In one sense, these men were correct that circumcision was necessary for salvation but they were just wrong about what kind of circumcision. The, the real thing here, they thought it was an act of the human flesh. They thought it was something external that they needed to do to their physical bodies in order to prove themselves a part of the family of God. When in reality, it is an act of divine intervention. It is an act of heart surgery on the part of God to your spiritual soul. It is what the New Covenant calls the circumcision of the heart, of our inner being. In fact, this is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 2, where he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What identifies you as being a part of the true people of God It's your faith. It is the sealing work of the Holy Spirit so that no one is able to put confidence in their own good works, but boast exclusively and only in the saving work of Christ alone. Faith, faith alone, is what marks someone in God's community. Some of you may be asking this morning, is the difference that we're talking about really that important? Are we just, are we just splitting hairs here? It sounds awfully like a, a divisive sermon, potentially, that this could just be based on certain preferences, right? Maybe just some simple misunderstandings. As a proclaimer of the gospel of God, I'm here to remind you this morning, based on what the scriptures say, that the difference that Paul is talking about here is as severe as life 
and death. It is the difference, church, between heaven and hell. And if you do not believe me, look at Paul's words to the Galatians in chapter 1. He's writing to them, wondering what happened after he left. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are trusting in what? A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How are they doing so? By this very act that we're talking about right now, a circumcision. He says that for those who do this to you, let them be accursed. This is the difference between the true and lasting gospel and the false and condemning gospel. What has Paul done here? He is essentially putting everything and everyone in their proper place. He has placed the Judaizers who assumed themselves to be the people of God on the outside and has now placed these Gentile Christians who once saw themselves on the outside in their proper place within the family of God. Because they place no confidence in the flesh. What makes you a true member of the family of God? What is the source and the safety for true spiritual joy? What is the exclusive grounds for Christian boasting? What is the only confidence you have for your salvation, church? It is nothing more than the finished work of of Christ. That is the grounds of our hope. That is the grounds of the true and lasting gospel. And so as we look at these first three verses to chapter three, what is it that the Lord would want us to understand from this passage? I think one application, first of all, would be this, that we are naturally a forgetful people. We are naturally a forgetful people. And Paul, in verse one, Paul says that it is no trouble for him to write the same things to this church. So much of Paul's ministry was reminding people of what they had already been taught. And it can lead us to believe that the first century church, in many ways, they were just this dense group of people that just could not get it through their minds. We're naturally quick to sit back sometimes and look at this and we're like, seriously, again? They should know this already. It's like watching the Israelites of old. How in the world are they running into the same things? How are they being tempted to run astray again? And then we turn the mirror on ourselves, right? And we, rec we recognize our own reflection. And we say, oh yeah, that's actually me. Church, we are naturally a forgetful people. That's why we need the church. That's why we need God's word. That's why we need Christian ministry and fellowship. So much of our discipleship and our ministry within the church is what? It's reminding. It's pointing people back to what God's word actually says to say, do not forget, dear brother, do not forget, dear sister, what the Lord has given to you. Do not forget the promises that he has made to you. Do not forget from where you have come. We're all spiritual amnesiacs, but praise God that he is so gracious, that he uses his word and his people to help us stay the course. 
And this is so important because we need one another to help be on guard against all forms of Jesus plus theology. That's a big phrase, a big word. But for the first century church, the the teaching of the, the Judaizers was a very real threat. This idea that you needed to perform some physical outward sign to identify yourself and make yourself truly a part of God's spiritual community. That was a very real threat for them. But I think it would be a very grave mistake for us to think that this was a mere first century church issue. After all, the Bible is very clear there's nothing new under the sun, right? Jesus plus theology still exists today just in different forms, right? We're all familiar with this. I'd say like, well, Jesus and his saving work is necessary, but make sure you're also identifying yourself with the right political party, right? Jesus is great, but make sure that you're really keeping up to this standard of your devotions and your prayer life and these things. Make sure it's there. You know, Jesus is great, but really you got to make sure you keep yourself in good standing with him because of how you live. Many of us in this area and our culture have actually found that it's not so much of a Jesus plus theology, but maybe in addition by subtraction. It's Jesus minus certain things, right? Jesus and his saving work is great, but make sure you don't consume alcohol. Make sure you don't dance. Make sure you don't go to the movies. Make sure that you don't do this and that and that, and then you'll be, make, you'll, you'll be secure. That's the form of legalism, right? That, that, that puts limits and boundaries where they're not meant to be. And perhaps another form that's very popular in our culture is not so much the Jesus plus theology, but it's the me plus Jesus and something else theology. It's the idea that really my life is all about my pursuits and the American dream and making sure that I get the right education, I make the right money, I have the right financial plan, the right retirement lined up, and I'll make sure that, you know, within my busy schedule and all my kids' soccer practices and all my church meetings, all the things, I'll I'll make sure that Jesus fits in there somewhere uh, just to add that security, right? He's just kind of just fit in where necessary, All of these, all of these, church, are grave misunderstandings of what the gospel is to the Christian life. And for someone to add some type of requirement to the already perfect work of Christ is for them to tie a heavy stone around your neck, push you off the deck, and now say, go ahead and try to swim. It will only condemn It will only drown you. That is not freedom. It is bondage of the worst kind. And we must be on guard against it at all costs. And we must protect one another from such error for the good of our souls and the purity of the true gospel. Third, what matters most is a new creation. What matters most is a new creation. This is the very argument that Paul makes in verse 3 of what the true circumcision is. What makes someone a true member of God's family is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And God's Spirit only indwells those who have been given the gift of faith, causing them to become 
As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creations. Once again, Paul's message to the Galatians rings true here in Galatians 6.15. He says, what matters most is not circumcision or uncircumcision. What matters most is a new creation. But how do we know this? How do we know that this has taken place in our lives? After all, let's just be honest. Something that's physical and outward is much easier to identify, right? Uh, Physical circumcision, it seems far easier than spiritual circumcision to identify. So how do we see evidence of the circumcision of the heart? This is where we have to be reminded, if this is the work of God's spirit, then it will show itself in the life of the believer. The word the Bible uses to describe such evidence is a word we're all familiar with. It's the word fruit. Fruit. It comes out of that life. Galatians, again, chapter 5, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Kids, you know it. You, read, you sing songs about it, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those things. Those will show themselves. They will evidence themselves, not perfectly, but they will in increasing measure over time to show that you are having the right joy and satisfaction in the right place. It is evidence that God has done a new work in your life, that you are a part of this new creation And then finally this morning, joy in Christ. I did say finally, so that is the wrap-up word, right? (laughs) Joy in Christ is foundational to your Christian testimony. Everything that Paul has just explained sets the tone for what he's going to talk about in verses 4 to 11. This is of utmost importance to Paul. And he's going to explain that when we come back to this passage on June 4th. And I'd encourage you to read ahead here maybe this next week. But suffice it to say for now... That satisfaction in Jesus is central to your salvation story. After all, so much of your Christian testimony is tied up into what you were trusting before Jesus. Where your confidence had previously been misplaced. Where your confidence and your satisfaction in life had previously been found. But now, but now, your story is about how Jesus has shown himself to be far superior and far more satisfying than anything else that this world can provide. That's good news, isn't it, this morning? That's news worth rejoicing in today, not because of anything that we have done, but exclusively because of Christ's work in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the sufficient and the satisfying work of Jesus. And my prayer this morning for our people is that they would believe it. Lord, we all need these reminders. We live in a world that is constantly trying to pull us away from joy in Christ. We see the temptations around us. We see the the pull of the culture in us. And so we need this morning to reorient our mind and reorient our thinking and to be reminded, Lord, of the power of Christ and Christ alone. And so I pray for the hearts of your people this morning, Lord,
that you would refresh them in the spirit of Christ, to help them remember, even if they're in the midst of trials, even if they're in the midst of suffering and pain and loss, whatever it may be this morning, Lord, help them to remember the joy and the lasting satisfaction that they have in Jesus. And for those who don't know that joy this morning, Lord, help them to see that Jesus fully satisfies in ways that this world can never, Lord. They only end up more empty by pursuing and running into it. So help the light of Christ to be the light that transforms them. Even today, Lord, would you be glorified to do that? We would ask in Christ's name, amen.